0: Welcome to the 342nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Frank Zafiro, co-author of the new novel Code 4. And stay tuned after the interview for a short reading from Code 4 by Frank Zafiro. Stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and writing podcast special offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Frank Zafiro, co-author of the new novel Code 4, a Charlie 316 novel. The author of many crime novels, including the River City novels, Frank was a police officer in Spokane, Washington from 1993 to 2013. He also hosts the podcast Wrong Place, Right Crime. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Well, Thanks for having me. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, Code 4, a Charlie 316 novel that you co-wrote with Colin Conway, how would you describe the novel?
1: Uh well, it is the conclusion of the four-book arc uh that starts in Charlie 316. And um the series is, you know, like a lot of series, it's not uh, necessarily consistent in tone. In in other words, the first book has a lot of action and and politics and suspense. Uh, The second book kind of leans into the politics a little bit. And then the third book kind of leans into the action and suspense a little bit. I mean, it's all there, but the focus, you know, shifts a little bit. Uh, And this one kind of comes back to center where all of it is focused. Uh, The the politics that are going on in this town uh, over the events, the action, the suspense, and ultimately the culmination of of what's been going on for, for four books.
0: And so do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the four-book Charlie 316 novels? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it was it was Colin that started it all.
1: Um, he and I, uh, we worked together uh, when he was a, a police officer for about five years. Uh, and then during that time period, we became friends, but we bonded over, over writing. Um, and, and he was writing. I'd, I had come back to writing fiction after uh, a while of not uh doing it and then uh we ended up writing a book together set in my river city uh universe called Some Degree of Murder and uh, that was you know way back in like 2005 and and uh, eventually we published it in, in 2012 I think um so we knew we could work together and we we'd read each other's stuff a lot and everything and he came to me and said hey uh, I've got this idea, and then he kind of laid out the bare bones of it. I thought it was a fantastic idea about this police officer who's a golden child, who's a favorite son of the department and 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 really of the city, who gets in a questionable shooting. And, and then the politics uh, at all levels that surround that and the question of whether, you know, will the city, will the department, will they sacrifice their their uh, favorite son on the, on the altar of political expediency is kind of where it started. And he said, you know, I, I, I'm really excited about this idea, but I want to get into some stuff that I'm not as well versed in. And I don't want to get over my skis on it. Uh, And what he was referring to were, were some of the processes and uh, other, other things that surround an officer involved shooting that I would have had experience uh, during my time on the job. Um, uh having served in an executive level uh officer I uh, was a captain when I retired and just been around policing longer um uh, and so I was happy to bring that little bit of expertise to the table but then uh you know we started working on it together and it started fleshing out even further and it just really took off uh but definitely the 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 beginning of it was all
0: Colin and so can you tell us a little bit about the writing process with you and your co-author Colin uh sure. Um
1: that you know when we wrote Some Degree of Murder together, um that book was a dual first person narrative with alternating chapters on the on the perspective. So uh in in lay terms I, that meant I wrote one character, he wrote one character and we both wrote in the first person. And we just alternated uh, which you know chapters. First, it would be a Detective John Tower chapter, then it would be a Virgil Kelly chapter, and back and forth. And that was how we we wrote that. And we did it with very little roadmap. And 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 I mean, we 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 knew our destination, and we knew a couple of stopovers along the way, but the the rest we kind of kind of pantsed it. Um, that obviously wasn't going to work with this book because it was so much more complex and so many more moving parts. Um, and so we sat down and did a, uh, a pretty good outline and batted that back and forth for, for some time, uh, nailing down, you know, what was going to happen where and, and, and getting a handle on the characters um, you know, I live in central Oregon now. He, he still lives in Spokane, but we got together a couple of times in person to, to brainstorm and, and to get stuff locked down. And then once the writing started, we, uh, there were a couple of characters that each of us wrote exclusively. Uh, but then the rest of the characters, you know, it just was, uh, whoever, whoever needed to write them based on where we were in the story, wrote them. And, um, you know, I would write a section or he would write a section and then we send it to the other guy. And, um, the, the process that was really kind of, I don't know that I, I think really made it a tighter book when just the first draft was finished was that if you imagine, say he writes chapter one and two, and then sends them to me, um, I read them write then critique them, you know, use track changes and, and, and cut them up lots of red ink if necessary. Uh, and send it back uh but before i send it back i write my chapters say i write chapter three so then all three chapters go back to him he looks at responds to and revises accordingly on chapters one and two does the same you know critique job on my chapter three and cuts it up and comments on it and, and fixes my typos and mistakes and makes suggestions and so forth and then uh uh, uh, writes his chapter four and then sends it back to me. And so that, you know, we're doing this, this constantly. And so by the time you get done with, uh, you know, your first draft doing it that way, you're really at like 1.5 or, or, or even close to second draft territory. Um, and so it also becomes a very collaborative process in that you're, you might not be writing a character or a scene, but you're doing so much in the revision department that, uh, that, that instead of his voice or my voice, it becomes a kind of a third, uh, kind of, uh, a voice of its own, you know, a, a combined voice.
0: Sure. Well, does your writing process in terms of outlining versus more, uh, organic writing a, of a novel, does that change at all? Uh, when you're writing a novel by yourself versus co-writing?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, I used to not hardly outline at all. Uh, and, and really what this, you know, I've collaborated with Colin on four books now and and I've collaborated with several other authors as well. And all of that collaboration has had the impact of, of making me a bit more of an outliner. Um, I would say more of a bullet point outliner as opposed to a, you know, uh, down to the nitty gritty, uh, every last detail sort of outliner, but it has shifted me that direction. Whereas I used to just be, uh, hey, what would happen if, uh, you know, to spark a story and then just start writing and totally pants it. And uh, I think I've, I've, I've been pulled away from that a bit now in my solo work as well. And so, you know, at least have a couple of pages of handwritten
0: notes uh, to get started. Well, I know that you've written and published many novels. How did you first get interested in writing fiction?
1: Uh, It's one of those things that's always been with me as a kid. I can't remember not wanting to be a writer. Um, You know, I, I would compare it to somebody who's, you know, into playing music or something and they just always wanted to pick up the drums or something. And, and, you know, when did they become a drummer? Well, you know, I guess, you know, why, at what point did they become a drummer that officially or at what point did they think of themselves as a drummer? Um, And so I guess always is, is the, the latter answer. Um, And I started writing, you know, silly, stupid stories, you know, paragraph long when I was you know, pretty young. Um, and, and that continued through, you know, my, my teenage years and, and adulthood, I actually had my first story published, uh, like in 1989 or 90 when I was in the military. Um, and you know, I, I knew I was going to be a writer, but the thing of it is, is it's not like you just hang out your, you know, Sign and say I'm a writer, and people start sending you checks. I mean, you kind of have to have a backup <laughs> plan, um, and so uh, you know that's why I I looked into uh, either being a teacher or a police officer, and and ultimately I didn't need my four year degree to start in law enforcement. The college I had was enough, and that's really why I went that route instead of teaching. Um, and I had a big gap where I didn't write fiction when I was in the early portion of my police career, but. That was just because I was writing so much on the job and learning the job. And I went back to college and finished uh, my my undergraduate degree while I was working. And that was in history. And there's a ton of reading and writing there. And uh, so there's a bit of a gap where I wasn't writing much fiction,
0: but I was doing a lot
1: of technical writing.
0: Sure. So what was your journey to finally writing and getting your first novel published?
1: Um, After that kind of maybe eight or nine year break where I didn't really write much crime fiction. I wasn't habitually writing crime fiction. I'll put it that way. Um, that kind of ended when, uh, I reached a point in my career where I, would kind of had a, a plateau of sorts in terms of learning new jobs or promoting or whatever. I, I solidified a bit and that was a, a, coincidentally about the same time that I met Colin and we started talking and he was picking up the pen again after a bit of a, of a break from that due to, due to, just due to life. Right. And you know how it is uh, when you're excited about something uh, you know, you sit down, and have coffee with somebody else who's excited about it and you get all jazzed up and it really motivates you. And I think that that association really helped uh, push me to use that, more time that I had to really explore, uh, writing again. And so this was around 2003, 2004. And so I started writing a lot of short stories and submitting them to, uh, different magazines. And, and this was a time when, um, you know, there were online magazines that were no long, you know, had, were becoming reputable. It wasn't something that people looked down their nose at as much as they did a few years prior. And so some were print magazines, some were online magazines, and uh, just kind of became part of the the, the community that way. Uh, and I picked up the book that I had started back in 1995 and, uh, and, and finished it and hopefully improved it a little bit. And that became uh, Under a Raging Moon, which was the first River City novel. Uh, And one of the guys that had a magazine called Crime and Suspense uh, uh, had a a small publishing
0: outfit uh, and uh, he he took it on and published it. That's great. So how how did your work as a police officer, how does that impact the crime writing that you do? It's pretty huge, I think,
1: um, especially early on. I mean, I I started writing those short stories again in two thousand and four or so, and and I was on the job until two thousand and thirteen. So that's nine years, half of my career almost, that I was you know actively writing um, crime fiction and was working as a police officer in a variety of different roles, and so it impacted it quite a bit in that um, a. a f- a good percentage of my work was procedural type of uh, stories and, or, or at least had an emphasis on that somewhere in the story. Um, I departed from that obviously on many occasions, but uh, a good percentage of it. um, I mean, the river city series is a procedural series. It's a, uh, you know, there's a focus on, on the, on what the police do and how they do it in order to, you know, uh, solve the mystery, and the mystery is more of a will they catch them than a who done it, and and so it influenced it quite a bit. Um, and you know, for a lot of writers, uh, when you get into the crime writing community, you see what the larger questions are that people tend to have. You know, like the things that they don't feel like they necessarily have a grasp on, and a lot of times that's technical details in law enforcement, things about. You know so things as simple as reading someone their rights and everything that surrounds that, uh which sounds really simple, but it's actually a pretty complex uh, uh technical detail that a lot of people get wrong and you know those are the questions that a lot of writers had, and I had the advantage of you know i I knew when somebody had to read them their rights and when they didn't uh, I knew when they were violating their rights and when they weren't because I knew what those rights were I knew how a uh, crime scene was processed i knew what happened uh, you know in an arrest situation or just small details that that other writers who weren't in law enforcement uh, had to seek out and hope were right or as i just could write from experience um, and and so that was a a, a real advantage uh, the other thing it did i i think is you know in 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 american literature uh, the, the law enforcement officers are, they're mythologized and, and sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a bad way, but they're, they're definitely mythologized and having lived in that world, I, I try to bring a a, a little more humanity and, and real peopleism to, to, to the characters or particularly in the river city series uh, to, to show, you know, uh, a lot of people, they look at a cop and they see the badge first, you know, and the, and the uniform second, and then maybe there's a person inside it. Um, and, and I wanted it to be the other way around. I wanted the readers to know, oh, this is Katie McLeod. You know, this is Thomas Chisholm. This is who he is, who she is, and then engage with their profession and what they have to do. I mean, the identities are, are pretty interwoven and, and inseparable. But at least they could be viewed separately, and hopefully, the person and then the officer, as opposed to the other way around. And I tried to bring that to that series in particular, uh, just because I, I think it's something that isn't that's missing uh, in, in a lot of
0: of uh, of crime fiction. Gotcha. So, can you tell us about your podcast, Wrong Place, Right Crime? Uh, I'd love to.
1: Um it's a uh essentially uh seasons run from September to June. Uh it's weekly uh about a 15 to 20 minute episode every week. Uh but uh in the middle of the month um is a feature episode that runs closer to an hour, more of a deep dive. Uh and I interview largely uh crime fiction authors. Um and we mostly talk about crime fiction, but I you know I I almost have to amend that to mystery writers because uh, and thriller writers because I've expanded the, the the kind of guests I bring on and I mix it up and other people who maybe aren't crime fiction authors come on. Um, initially, the it was a monthly deal with just the deep dive, and my thought was, you know, I wanted a podcast where. If you were, you know, going for a drive on a dark night and you wanted to listen to a couple talk a couple of people talk about something you were interested in, but maybe not stay focused on that entirely the whole time and just have a conversation. You know, it's raining outside, and you're you know, it's dark and you listen to a couple of people chat about something you dig, but then they talk about something different too. And that was kind of the angle that I went with. Uh but, you know, it was only getting to do like nine or ten interviews a year doing it that way, and I, I wanted more Contact and and uh, so that's when I went to the open and shut episodes in between those feature episodes of fifteen to twenty minutes, where we do focus like you know real quickly on here here's who the author is and then let's talk about the author's work, particularly if they have something new coming out. And it, it's been great. I'm coming up on a hundred episodes here in January, and it, it it's been an opportunity even before all of this quarantine. Uh, I was pretty much a hermit, uh, after I retired, i have been working from home and everything. And so it's been a great way to really, uh, to, to have contact and interaction with other writers and, and hear their processes and hear their viewpoints, which are, you know, sometimes very different. And, uh, uh and it's been a learning curve too, as you well know. I mean, uh, it's not as easy as people think to put together a quality podcast.
0: <laughs> yes, true. So <clears throat> are you working on a new novel now? You know, I'm actually in kind of a weird place. Uh,
1: the short answer is yes, but I haven't really put word the first word down yet. Um, I, you know, I, I finished with Code 4 and I finished my last River City book uh, earlier this year. And I've got some shorter projects that have been kind of on the back burner that need to get taken care of that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, the reason I say I'm in a weird place is... I've got about four different books ready to go. And this is the first time in a few years where um, I have the choice of which one really. I mean, there's no timing issues or responsibilities to other people or contracts that are telling me this is what's up next. So I kind of get to pick and choose between about four different projects uh, that that I'm going to get rolling on in January and uh, maybe sooner. And that's kind of different. I haven't felt – I haven't had that level of freedom in about 10 or 12
0: years. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm curious, do you ever sit down to a blank page and have problems uh, getting started writing? And if you do, what what do you do on those days or those mornings? You know, uh, I don't know if it's
1: an unpopular opinion to have or a lousy thing to say, but i think writer's block is kind of a joke i don't i don't think it exists and at least you know at least not for me now i can you can always write and the way through writer's block is to write now i you can write and it can suck you know and it can be terrible and you can end up not using a, a single word of it except maybe chapter 1 uh but you can write and i i have an opinion that i that the people who suffer from writer's block you know, there's different kinds of writers. And I, I for me, I'm okay with vomiting uh, up onto the page and then going back and sifting through the, the debris and finding the, you know, the good stuff and keeping it and getting rid of the rest. I'm, I'm okay with that process. I don't, you know, that's, that's my part, you know, it's, it works. I know other writers and the, their process and is, just as valid is that they think it through very clearly and very like specifically and then when they put pen to paper there's not, there's no vomit there. It's, it's all what, you know, there's only going to be a little polishing and, and, and tweaking later because it's pretty much ready to go. And, and I, that's great. That's their process and, and it's just as valid and, and as mine. But I think it's also more prone to this thing that people call writer's block. I think that that, that process and that, type of writer who thinks that way and and operates that way is more vulnerable to it because I, you know, I can just say, you know, I'm not feeling this, but I'm going to try to push through and maybe I push through and it sucks. and I don't use any of it, but I, I don't have that frozen by inaction kind of wall that starts to build up. Uh, so I guess I have to amend my earlier comment. Writer's block does exist. It doesn't exist for me because of that you know, because of that mentality. Uh, But, uh, you know, I feel bad when, when somebody's up against that because, you know, we all are a little bit prisoner to our own nature and, and that is how some people think and work and they make great, beautiful things with that process. Uh, It's just, you know, one of the, the shortfalls of it. I mean, the shortfall of my process is you do a lot more work and a lot of it sucks. So, I mean, who's to say which, which is better?
0: Right. So what other writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels?
1: Um, I'm going to go with the great one, Stephen King, on this one and say, read, 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 read. Um, I, I, I'm baffled by by people who don't read in general. And I'm absolutely uh, poleaxed by people who say they want to be or are writers and don't read. Um, it just, it's, I don't, I don't understand that. It's, uh, uh, the only, you know, as writers, you, you are, are taking in everything around you, um, you know, your own thoughts and experiences, but then everything that's going on in the world around you, uh, including what you read and that all, all of that informs your ability to write. And if you're not reading, you are missing out on all the incredible, well, first off, you know. As you well know, you're missing out on a whole world of enjoyment, but you're also missing out on a whole slew of examples of what works and what doesn't. And you know, uh, great—it's a great teaching mechanism. Uh, it's like push-ups for your writer's brain. And people who don't do that don't have the, the upper body strength to write. I don't know. I'm losing my analogy here. Um, so, but read, 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 read. It's—it's it's practice writing in a way, and then right, right, right. Uh, you know, I mean, you learn by doing in this craft and yes, there has to be some direction and you need feedback uh, and you, and you need to learn the craft. Uh, but you, you know, it's like, you know, I, my, my bio says I'm a tortured guitarist and that's because I'm a very poor, very poor guitarist. But I put that in there to remind myself what my journey has been like trying to learn the guitar and it's hard, you know, <laughs> it's anybody that's ever tried. That's not a musical prodigy knows that it's hard. Writing is hard. And, but I keep at it. I watch YouTube videos and practice. I talk to other musicians that they'll you know, give me a tweaker here or, or or some advice and I keep at it and I've gotten better. I mean, I won't play for anybody. That's not like, like, familiarly contracted to say it was good. You know, I mean, my, my wife is my only fan and, and she ducks shows occasionally, but you know, but, the but I am getting better and it's the same thing with writing. You know, you, you have to keep at it. Um, but I couldn't just watch those YouTube videos and go, Oh, that makes sense. And never touch a guitar and practice and then expect that to just by osmosis suddenly make me a better guitar. So it doesn't work that way. And it's the same way with writing. You have to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. Um, and then the other piece of advice that I, I wish I had gotten um, earlier, what is find, uh, you know, two or three people who will be supportive, but honest, Uh, somebody who's on your side, who believes in you, who wants you to be better, but isn't just a cheerleader. Uh, so that when they point out to you, this character is flat, this scene sucks. I don't understand this. There's not enough detail or whatever it is that they point out. Uh, you'll know they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. They're not doing it to make you feel bad. They're not doing it to feel superior. They're not doing it to be mean. They're on your side. They, but they're going to point out to you when you're walking out, you know, in public with your zipper down, you know, they're going to they're on your side. Um and I did have a few people early on that I that I didn't realize had other reasons for being critical and and other reasons for 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 reading stuff uh, and and offering comment. And I did learn to to cull those people out of my circle and to only, you know, have and, and then try to be myself uh, for other people, that positive but brutally honest supporter um, that can really help you uh, get better. Uh, and that's 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 so important uh, because those friends, and and they don't have to be writers, but it helps if at least one of them is, they'll make you better, but they'll also, they'll get you through when you're feeling down. When they tell you something's great, you know, now they've got the street credibility for you to believe them and feel good about what you wrote as opposed to, oh, this is
0: great, honey. I'm going to put it on the refrigerator type of thing. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Um, I've actually revisited an old uh, science fiction, uh, would it be a Pentology five book series Um, by Piers Anthony. Uh, called bio of a space tyrant and uh it 's a you know futuristic uh like twenty seven hundred is the is the year twenty seventh century uh series that just traces this guy 's whole life from when he's a refugee to being a a dictator uh in the solar system and and I remember reading it when I was maybe seventeen nineteen something like that and and, uh, I've been revisiting it on audio. And so that's, that's been really good. Um, I recently read, uh, Mary Beard's, uh, book on Rome called SPQR, which was just fantastic for the historian in me, but I, it was so accessible that I, I think it's one of those history books that people who don't like history, uh, would, would really enjoy. Um, and, uh, I, I, uh, Read uh, Stephen King's The Outsider, the book that the uh, the HBO series was based on. Uh, and shocker of shockers, the book was better.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually read that Piers Anthony um, a series probably around the same age as you did, 17 or 18. Uh, so where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels?
1: Uh, pretty easy, just uh, com. And uh, I've got, uh, got everything there.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Frank Zafiro, co-author of the new novel Code 4, a Charlie 316 novel. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Frank, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me. Now stay tuned for a reading from the novel Code 4 by Frank Zafiro. Hey, this is Frank
1: Zafiro here, and I'm going to read a few pages from my forthcoming novel, Code 4, that I wrote with Colin Conway. It is the fourth and final book in the Charlie 316 arc, and so I will warn you there will be a couple of spoilers here, uh, although this uh, segment does come very early on in the book. I guess all you need to know in order to have context for this reading is that Wardell Clint is a city detective who is conducting a shadow investigation, a secret investigation, into an officer named Tyler Garrett, and the only person who is aware of that is a police captain named Tom Farrell. Clint headed toward the mailboxes outside the lieutenant's office to see if Jody was correct about the lab report on the Meyer case. Halfway there, someone called his name. Wardell. Clint recognized Captain Tom Farrell's voice before he turned. Captain, we need to talk. Clint glanced around. They stood in the broad walkway that separated the detectives' bullpen and the secretary pool, and near the lieutenant's office. Clint couldn't imagine a worse place to discuss secrets. Not here, he said. Now, Farrell snapped. Before Clint could respond, the captain wheeled and strode away. Clint considered ignoring him and continuing with his own business. But he knew Farrell would be back. They shared too many secrets for him not to return. Ever since the formation of the anti-crime team, Farrell had seemingly become more and more unraveled. Clint didn't want to risk a slip of the tongue from the harried administrator. So he followed. Farrell led him down the hall and out the west doors, an employee-only entrance. It was also a favorite place for smokers to congregate, in clear violation of the state law regarding the proximity to a building entrance. There were no smokers now, however. Ten yards away from the door, Farrell stopped and waited. Clint moved close enough to the captain to encourage a low tone of voice. Farrell got the point as he spoke in a hushed whisper. DOJ is coming. Clint pulled back in mild surprise. Here? Yes, here. Today. Why? We don't know. So you're telling me shit you have no idea about? Just to raise my blood pressure? No, Farrell said. He waved his hand, irritated. The chief figures it's because of everything. Stone, the business with the councilman, Garrett's shooting, all of it. It adds up to something, and they're interested. Good for them. Don't be flippant. This is serious. Clint shook his head. If the feds want to poke around, what do I care? Farrell's eyes widened. Seriously? He glanced around to make sure no one was nearby. If they find out we've been running a secret investigation off the books on Garrett for two years, he let the thought hang in the air. Clint twirled his finger. Then what? Farrell's expression was incredulous. Have you suddenly forgotten how precarious our situation is here? Precarious? Clint shook his head at the word, finding it an overstatement. DOJ coming doesn't matter. Do you really think that some half assed Fed is going to break open a case I've been trying to crack for two years? That's not the point. Sounds like the point. God damn it, Wardell. The point is that when we bring this case in, it has to be done right. Otherwise, you and I will end up with our asses in a sling. Clint shrugged. That much was true. Don't shrug like it doesn't matter, said Farrell. I don't want any stink on this when we take him down. Clint grunted. <laughs> Captain, you're aiming way too high. Everything about this case stinks. We can't avoid that now. There's only one thing we need to focus on. Which is? Justice. Farrell let out a long sigh of frustration. Well, the Department of Justice is coming here on a fact-finding mission later today, and if they don't like what they see, they'll report back to Washington, D.C., and we'll have a full-fledged investigation on our hands. Once that happens, the most likely outcome is a consent decree. Clint thought about it. He knew little about consent decrees, but he did know that if DOJ slapped one on the department, it was tantamount to a complete takeover. The ensuing demands would hamstring his efforts to bring down Garrett. Not only would everyone from the lieutenants on up be scrambling to create or modify policy or gather data, but that shit would roll downhill to detectives and officers. Moreover, the increased, constant scrutiny might result in exactly what Farrell feared the premature revelation of their two-year clandestine investigation into Tyler Garrett before they had sufficient evidence to charge him. Under the cloud of suspicion that came with a consent decree, he knew that it would necessarily be Garrett's wrongdoing that got the most attention. Clint and Farrell's methods would come under fire, and the DOJ investigators would almost certainly see that as proof of a corrupt department. Clint believed there was some minor crooked behavior going on at SPD, and especially City Hall. But outside of everything surrounding Garrett, things were a long way from corrupt. I see what you mean, he said. Good. We'll need to be careful. What? Farrell shook his head. Careful? No. We need to suspend the Garrett investigation while DOJ is in the house. Stop everything. Once they leave, we can... I'm not stopping shit. Farrell's mouth hung open in mid-speech. He slammed it shut in anger and glared at Clint. Clint stared back, implacable. The battle of wills went on for thirty seconds before Farrell spoke again. He enunciated his words clearly and emphatically. You will stand down, detective. That's an order. Do you understand me? Clint nodded. I understand. But like I told you once before, we are way past rank having anything to do with our situation anymore. Once we drop the hammer on Garrett— We'll both have our roles to play. You'll be the captain, and I'll be the detective. Until then, I'm going to do what I need to do to finish this. I suggest you stop rubbing your hands together like a nervous old lady and get with the program. Without waiting for a reply, Clint walked away, heading for the west doors. He was through them and several steps down the hallway when Farrell arrived at his side. Do not fuck this up for both of us, Farrell snarled his voice still barely above a whisper. Clint didn't break stride. I'd say you've already done that. Farrell didn't have a reply. He walked next to Clint, seemingly in stunned surprise. Clint welcomed the silence. So far, all Farrell had brought to this investigation were demands and missteps. If the captain wanted to stand down while DOJ was present, that was fine with him, but Clint wasn't going to give Garrett any breathing room. When they reached the entrance to the investigative division, Clint stopped. He gave Farrell a cold stare. We're finishing this, he said simply. Farrell stared back, his previous fury replaced with the look of a man lost. Clint didn't care. He left him there and went back into investigations. Before going back to his desk, he stopped by the mailboxes outside of Lieutenant Flower's office. He shuffled through the small stack of papers in his slot, but found nothing from the lab. That figures he muttered and headed to his desk to get to work
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant